You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. I was growing up as a, as a child uh, watching TV and there would be times and seasons of the year where um, when you turned on the TV, you would find a, a campaign to, to help children in Haiti or uh, Kenya or Ethiopia that were starving. And I know that you, were, you remember those images well, right? You would see uh, on the TV a child with their stomach distended and they would be skin and bones and uh, there'd be a 1-800 number you could call and and send money to send food, and they would have it broken down to the point to where uh, you could uh, send $10, and it would mean this much rice, or you could send $100, and it would mean uh, helping get fresh water into these areas. And, and down through the years, uh, millions and millions, even billions of dollars have been raised um, by churches and individuals all over the world to alleviate poverty and hunger. Uh, out of that, there have been countless myriad of ministries and nonprofits that have come out of, of the woodwork that run to disasters and, and help those that are less fortunate. Uh, the United Nations in 2000 came up with a plan to address these issues, and they came up with eight goals. And 193 nations signed on to this in 2000, and it's exactly the same goals that they have today. As a matter of fact, in 2020, they're going to have another gathering and kind of reemphasize these eight goals. The eight goals that they came up with, with the UN, at the UN and 193 nations signed on to help with this was, number one, eradicate extreme poverty. Number two, achieve universal primary education. Number three, promote gender equality and to empower women. Number four, reduce child mortality. Number five, improve maternal health. Number six, combat AIDS, HIV, malaria, and other widespread diseases. Number seven, ensure envir environmental stability. And number eight, global partnership for development. Those all sound like great things. And for you know the last 19 years, 193 nations have committed to do exactly those things. What's interesting, though, is a lot of the nations that signed on to do these very things are some of the exact nations where these problems are the worst. But I have come to a conclusion, and I have uh, done quite a bit of reading on this and quite a bit of studying on this over the years as to why, after all of the billions and billions of dollars and all the nonprofits and all the groups that have gone all over the world to alleviate poverty, why is it that in most of these same areas the poverty is just as bad as it's always been? Now, one answer to that question is that we live in a broken, fallen world. Sin is running rampant. Satan is seeking whom he may devour. And Satan works through rulers in high places, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, that, that Satan's power is focused on those rulers that are in charge of nations, and he, he deceives them and guides their heart to take advantage of the least among them. What's incredible to me is some of the countries that claim to be focused on human rights and helping people are exactly doing the exact opposite, China being one of those countries. I've been in China three different times. I have seen the poverty in that country with my own eyes. I have seen how people with disabilities are treated in that country. I have seen with my own eyes people laying everywhere in the streets, missing limbs, sick, begging to make an existence, to get by. 
and for China to claim that they are concerned about human rights uh, could not be anything further from the truth. But there's one thing that all of these countries is missing. Well, a couple of things. One is they don't take seriously the Bible, of course. They don't take seriously the fall of humanity. They don't take seriously the fact that the world is cast into sin and darkness. But there's another thing that I have found that all of these countries are missing. The reason that poverty is continuing to grow, the reason that people are continuing to be broken, and the reason that I have found, and he will not find it on any of the UN's top eight, the fact is, is the reason that people are still starving to death is not because of the lack of people trying to get food into these places. The problem is injustice, violence, hatred, and those who are willing to take advantage of the poor. If you think about it, when you have regimes that are in power, and they, they, are, they are sitting in a place of power and wealth, they control everything that happens in that country. So when aid is trying to get into these places, when there, when there is true people with the right heart and the right motivation to try to help people, what you end up with are these kings and rulers who take the money, take the food, use it for their own purposes, while the poor continue to be poor, and they continue to starve. Did you know that in Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C., they spend $850 per citizen in D.C. on law enforcement. Now, there's a lot of people who live inside D.C. So you begin to figure all that up, and you begin to see that there is a massive amount of money just in the D.C. area that's spent on supporting police and law enforcement to make sure that people follow the law. Well, did you know that in a place like, say, Malawi, that there is only, or Bangladesh, in India, very poor place. Did you know they only spend a dollar and fifty cents per person for justice, and legal, and law, and police officers? Matter of fact, if you go to these countries, you'll find that if there's any police at all, they're just kind of standing off while the crime is happening right in front of them. I saw this on two occasions in China, that there is law being broken right in front, and the police just turn their backs and walk away. It's incredible to me. Here in America, we have one prosecutor for every 12,000 citizens in this country. One prosecutor for every 12,000 people that makes sure that when someone breaks the law, that the prosecutor's job is to bring that to trial and make sure that the sentence matches the crime that has been committed and to present the case that a crime has been, in fact, committed. Did you know that in Malawi, there's only 1 to 1.5 million people? one prosecutor and 1.5 million people. You can imagine that if that prosecutor is honest and if he's doing his job, there's no possible way that he could even come close to bringing convictions to all of the crimes that have been committed if they even make it to court. Now, you got to understand that here in America that if you're impoverished and someone accuses you of a crime, you get a defense lawyer assigned to you free of charge. But in places like Kenya, if you don't have the money to pay for the lawyer, then your court case gets kicked out, even if you were the one that was violated. Imagine, women, that you, in, in, in Kenya especially, rape is a huge, huge problem within Kenya in the slums in Kibera. Imagine experiencing that and not being able to see justice done. I would offer to you that one of the main issues globally is not just the poverty, but the crime that is associated with the poverty. The people who need help can't get it. The ones who've been violated cannot go into a court system like you and I can and find justice. And so they live in a hopeless situation. 
And then David in Psalm 10 is talking about a, a situation in his time and his framework that fits perfectly with what we're discussing today. Because when he looks around in his current status, in his current world, he sees exactly the same thing happening. But what David does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he gives us some reasoning behind why it's happening. Why are people so violent towards the impoverished? Well, David surveys the world around him, and he gives us some answers. So when we talk about justice, when we look at the Old Testament, the word justice is, is used interchangeably. The Hebrew word, word is used interchangeably with righteousness. So it's the idea of a standard of right or something as it should be. If you go to D.C. and you go into the Supreme Court or you walk by the Supreme Court building, you'll see several statues around uh, the, 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 the courts, the Supreme Court, and you'll see a woman seating it on a bench. She has a blindfold on. And she's holding scales in one hand, and in the other hand, she's holding a sword. Now, the idea of that is, is that justice is supposed to be blind. In other words, that justice, the way it is supposed to be rendered by the law, has, takes into no account your situation. It only takes into account the law and what has been done to violate the law and how the person should be prosecuted and brought to justice. So that with the scales, when something is done wrong and the scales are out of balance, that the law then is enacted and penalties are assigned so that the scales of justice are even. And in our country, even though we have a broken system, and I'm not here by any means to say that our system's perfect when compared to other countries, but at least you have the opportunity to have your case heard. But in the majority of the world, it's just not the case. There are nobody looking out for the children. There's no one looking out for the single moms. There's no one looking out for, for these victims who are constantly being victimized in the system that they're in and then cannot find justice and cannot find what should be. You know, uh, it's amazing to me that, that on the inside of every person is this desire for justice. You know, uh, I, can remember, I can remember when the People's Court came on TV. Do you remember that? I was, I don't know how old it was, but I remember the People's Court. That was the first time a court show had ever come on TV. And now there's, I don't know, probably hundreds of them. But the People's Court, my mom and dad used to watch that show. And, and you know what they would do? They would sit there and they'd have the case, and the cases were being presented, and there'd be some elderly person that was taken advantage of. And you could just see my mom and dad say, now there, there better be justice. This person ought to have to pay. They ought to have to pay that lady back for how they treated her and maybe stole her money or took, taken her rent or taking advantage of her. But there is something that rises up inside of every one of us. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist or a believer in Christ. Built inside of you by God is this desire for the right to happen, the right thing, what should be, justice. That was built into you. That's part of the image of God in you. But for the majority of the world, because of corruption and violence, justice is not prevailing. In fact, justice may not be found anywhere. So I want to take a look this morning at what David has to say, and I want us to look closely at the source of this injustice, the source of this violence, because I believe as a church family, we have a responsibility to those nations all over the world. 
I know we do because Jesus said that we have a responsibility to not just our Jerusalem right here in Robinson County, not just our Judea, the state of North Carolina, not just our Samaria, the country as a whole, but we have responsibility to the uttermost. You and I right here in Lumberton, we have a responsibility for people all over the globe who are suffering and have come to the conclusion there is no hope. Look at what David says, Psalm 10. The interesting thing about these psalms, Psalms 7 through 10, usually when we read psalms, we read them in isolation of one another. So we take one psalm, and, and there is one thing that the writer is trying to get across. What's interesting is Psalm 7 through 10 should be read together. It's one of the only places in the psalms where this happens. So Psalms 7, 8, 9, and 10 are all dealing with kind of the same issue and really should be read together. But we're going to jump into Psalm 10. Notice what David says. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? What I love about the Psalms is the just gut-level honesty of the writers of the Psalms. In other words, David doesn't put on a mask here, and he tries to give us some kind of religious talk about you know, how he's feeling about this whole situation of injustice. He simply says at the very outset, God, I don't see you in all of this. Where are you? Have you turned your face away? Are you standing far off? Why have you, what does it seem as though you've hidden yourself? Why is it, God, that it seems as though you've locked your way somewhere, locked yourself away somewhere in a closet somewhere while the world falls into chaos? I love David for the fact that he deals with reality and takes the mask off. I'm glad that he's not giving us a lot of religiosity here. He just gets to the point. And for David, when he looked at his society and he looked at the world around him, there was a question in his mind that says, God, where are you in all of this? And if you haven't asked that in your life, I'm shocked by that. It doesn't mean that David has lost his faith. It doesn't mean that, that David somehow is looking at God in a, in a bad, evil way. It just simply means that when David looks at his surroundings, he's trying his best to see how God is in that mess. Just like the two turtles that were talking in the cartoon. David says this many times through the Psalms. I, I tried to look at all of them, but there's several of them. Where David, in whatever turmoil he's in, asks the question, God, where are you in this brokenness? I want you to take a look at the source of the injustice. Look at verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. He says, let them be called in the schemes that they have devised, for the wicked boast of the desires of the soul. The source of the injustice in much of the world, and, and right here in our own country, the source of injustice comes from pride, arrogance of the people who have the power and the influence, and yes, even the financial resources, it becomes a prideful, arrogant thing for them. And when that pride and that arrogance takes hold of their heart, they look at the poor not as someone who needs help, not someone who, who deserves intervention, but they look at the poor as someone to take advantage of. To not only take advantage of, but to build themselves up at the expense of other people. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, verse 3. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Now, it is absolutely positively true, no matter where you look in Scripture, whether it be the Proverbs, the wisdom literature, whether you look at what Jesus had to say 
and what he taught the disciples, whether you look at the epistles that Paul wrote, you will find the same exact issue that when we become so full of ourselves, when we're so filled with pride and arrogance, there is no room for God to control or deal or even move in our life. When we are so Christian, we are so consumed with ourselves. Then we easily move into a, a, what I call practical atheism. And what I mean by that is that we can, we can have a faith in Jesus Christ. We can even have begun following him. But we get so filled with ourselves and so arrogant and so prideful that we're living just like the rest of the world. No difference between us and this world who's lost and dying and on their way to hell. We can live as a practical atheist as though God doesn't exist. Even while... At some point in our life, maybe even putting our faith in Christ, we can become so filled with ourselves and so puffed up that we don't even consider God, and we certainly don't consider the poor. Driven by the desires of his soul, lust, covetousness, arrogance drives this. Notice what he says, verse 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. Well, of course, they're not going to seek God. So as we get filled with ourselves, whether we're lost or born again, and then we have, we have gotten into a place of just arrogance, regardless, we're not going to seek out God. We're not going to seek out his guidance. You know why? Because God is that absolute standard of truth. You know, our entire justice system here in America is built upon a lawgiver. That's why you can't walk through D.C. You can't walk through any of the buildings up there without seeing references to Jehovah God. Not Allah, not Buddha, but Jehovah God, the God of the Bible, the God of these 66 books. It's because our justice system and the fact that we have laws are built upon a God who never changes, an absolute lawgiver, truth. So, yeah, it's no surprising to me that when we are filled with ourselves, the last thing we want to do is seek out God. Because when we seek Him out, when we talk with Him, when we get into His Word, the first thing that's going to be dealt with is our own pride, selfishness, and arrogance. But it goes much further than that. Notice this. He says here in verse 4, In the pride of his face the wicked does not seek Him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. So when we move in a direction of atheistic thinking, and, and I want you to know that it's prevalent right here in Robinson County. Even though we've got churches on every corner, I'm going to tell you, I'm running into people on a regular basis that have come to the conclusion there is no God. Talk to some of our teenagers. Ask some of our teenagers about some of the conversations they're having on the high school campus and on the middle school campus. The majority of the teens they're running in, 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 into claim to know no God, that there is no God. They don't believe in any God. Now, some of that may be just to get a rise out of you, but for a lot of people, they simply do not accept that there is a God. Can we not come to a conclusion here that what David is seeing in his own space and time and context, that these people who claim there is no God are filled with themselves and filled with pride and arrogance to the point they care nothing about judgment, they care nothing about standard of truth, and all they care about is the God that they've created in their own heart. And you know who that is? Themselves. You see, we can't live in a vacuum. If we're going to accept the premise there is no God, well, trust me when I tell you, 
You're going to put a God on the throne of your life. Something's going to control you no matter what you call him. It could be you. Ultimately, that's where we're going to end up is that, that we are in control of our lives. This, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And what Satan had to say to Eve, and the main thing that he said to her that really got her attention, was don't you want to be a God yourself? You know, th this God who's coming and walking with you, he's keeping something from you. Don't you want to be in control? Don't you want to call the choices in your life? You don't want to have to be submission and submission to somebody else, do you? Both Adam and Eve just took hold of everything Satan was offering them, thinking that that was going to give them true life. Notice what else he says here, verse 5. His ways. David says, the ways of these unrighteous people, the ways of these people who have come to the conclusion there is no God, it seems as though they're prospering. And the reason they're prospering is because in their mind, they believe that God's judgments are on high. If they're even in existence, they don't believe in the judgment of God because there is no God. No one's going to hold them accountable. For all of his foes, he puffs at them. That, that's an interesting Hebrew word. It's almost like he just kind of like what we, we would do in our context where you say to someone, you know, there is a God in heaven. He's going to hold you accountable one day. If you don't put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will face punishment. And here's what you hear. Yeah, whatever. That's what that word puffs means. Just kind of blows out like, yeah, right. Who are you to tell me that I'm going to be just? Who are you to tell me that I'm going to be held accountable to this non-existent God that you keep talking about? David saw this in his generation. Isn't it amazing how little things have changed? Look at this. He says, verse 6, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression, and under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. This person that David is describing, it's not just one person. It's a whole host of people. And the characteristics that David sees in them is that they don't believe in any God that's going to hold them accountable. Their mouths are filled with sin and oppression. And every opportunity they can, they are taking advantage of those who are weak, the fatherless, orphans. They're taking advantage of the elderly, the widows, they're taking advantage of every weak person they can. Why? For their own personal gain. Why are these people continuing to be in poverty and poor and cannot seem to break out of this, this ceiling of, of impoverished people? Why can they not seem to move forward even when more and more organizations are able to support them and provide for them the needs necessary to break free? It's because they live in a regime where they believe there is no God and they will never be held accountable. And then they have a justice system that provides them no hope of ever being seeing things done right. It says, his mouth is filled with cursing, verse 7, and deceit. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Look at verse 8. He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor and he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his mind. And he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. 
he will never see it. David is explaining for us what he saw in his day, and we see exactly the same thing today. And I don't want you to come to the conclusion that this is just something that happens in Kenya. This is not just something that happens in Malawi or Indonesia. There are corruptions right here in our own county and in our own city of justice. You don't have to look far to find them. There are people here in our own community who have given up the idea of hope. There is a whole nation of people in the Bahamas this morning. Isn't it interesting that wherever a hurricane hits, and you saw it here through two hurricanes, we had to constantly deal with here in the church and in our community with these, with these people who came to our community to help put a roof on your house who were absolute crooks. Isn't it amazing that wherever there's a disaster, the crooks come out of the woodwork. I can't tell you how many phone calls we answered over here at the church, both through Matthew and Florence, of, of folks in our community, in our church, who, who had people show up on their doorstep to clean up trees out of their yard. And they would say, oh, we'll only charge you a hundred bucks or a couple hundred bucks to clean these trees up. And you trusted them, even though you didn't know them. And then when they got done with the job, they came and handed you a bill for $5,000, a widow woman. And I'm telling you, my blood boiled on several occasions. The police were calling us on a regular basis saying, watch out for this group, watch out for this group, tell your folks to watch out for this group, and we did the best we could. But it's incredible to me that when people are helpless, when people are broken, when people are devastated, when they've lost everything, these bunch of charlatan crooks come out of the woodworks. Why? Because they are filled with pride, and they do not believe, regardless of what comes out of their mouth, they do not believe that there's a God in heaven that's going to hold them accountable. You see, they say in their heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face and he will never see it. In Rio de Janeiro, up on a 2,300 foot high cliff, there's a statue of Christ with his arms wide open. It's called the Christ the Corcovado or Christ the Redeemer statue. That statue is 125 feet tall. And it, and it overlooks the city of Rio de Janeiro, which is about 900,000 or a million people. There's a lot of people down there. And if you know anything about Rio de Janeiro, there is all kinds of sin and rebellion and lust going on in that city. Brazil, uh, Brazil is turning in a direction of absolute lust. And up on that mountainside is Jesus standing with his arms wide open. And there's a story of this poor peasant man who climbs that 2,300-foot cliff to get at the base of that statue. And when he sits down under that statue, he begins to pray. And his prayer sounded something like what David said in verse 1. He says, there are a million of us down there. And we're poor and we're starving and nobody's advocating for us. Nobody's helping us. The, crime, the system is broken. And no matter what crime is per, uh, perpetuated in our city, nothing ever happens to those who cause the crime. And Jesus, here you are standing on a mountainside with your arms wide open with all of your divine presence here on this mountain. And I have to ask the question, when are you going to come down into the slums of Brazil and do something about the mess I'm in? Exactly the same thing that David said in Psalm 10. God, where are you? Why are you hiding your face? But, but did you know that in David's day, God had a solution? Did you know that God already had a solution in place? The solution was the Israelite nation itself. A people separated from the rest of the world in a love relationship with, 
with God who, who brought them into a covenant or a contract, a relationship with Him. And he, he gave them a set of laws and standards to live by. And those laws and standards were different than anything else the world had ever seen at that point. Here, here's a God who is dwelling with his people, leading them through the promised land, dwelling in a temple where they could interact directly with God through the sacrifices. And in that law, God said to them, you make sure you take care of the orphan. You make sure you take care of the widow. You make sure you take care of the poor. It was built in to the way they were to walk with God. And no other nation had a set of standards like God gave to the Israelite nation. And the Israelites were to be that light in a dark world where the impoverished and the broken could come. And yes, find food, but guess what else they could find? They could find justice. Because the Israelites had a standard of truth from the very mouth of God Himself. So when David asked the question, God, where are you? God's answer would have been, the Israelite nation is my answer to the problems that you're looking at. But how would we answer the question? We're not Israelites, are we? What about today? For, for this man who, who prays this prayer to a statue, there's something he missed. And you, you, you can't miss this. That Jesus did, in fact, come and walk in the slums of this world, didn't he? Jesus himself said that the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Where do we find Jesus? We find Him with tax collectors and harlots. We find Him with the poor. We find Him walking through the streets and a woman who had a, this disease for so long where she was bleeding and couldn't find any doctors that could help her. No, none of the Jewish people would ever lay a hand on her because she was unclean. This woman had no hope. And Jesus was passing through and the crowds are pressing around Him. And, and there's a woman who, who is trying to crawl on her feet just to be able to touch Him because she believed if she could just lay a hand on the hem of His garment, that that would be enough. The faith that this woman had in this Messiah was unlike anything even the 12 disciples had at that moment. And Jesus stops, does He not? He says, somebody has touched me with faith. But, 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 Messiah, but Jesus, everybody's touching you. No, 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 no. I know the crowd's touching me, but somebody has touched me with faith. And he stops and he turns and, and the woman is healed on that day. The broken, the impoverished, the one without any hope. Jesus came and he walked in the slums of this world. Why? So that they would know that there's truth and they would know that there's justice and they would know that there's freedom. How does that carry out today? Well, through the arms and feet of Jesus. Who is that? Not an Israelite nation the New Testament church, you and me, who know Jesus Christ by faith. Lost person, you got to understand this. you got to get this. Je Jesus just didn't come to teach a few good lessons. He, he didn't come to earth as just another good teacher who could do a few miracles and do a few tricks. Lost person, you got to understand that when Jesus came to this world, He ran towards the broken and the poor. He ran towards those who had a ton of issues, just like you. That, that Jesus came for people just like you. 
as broken in your sin as you are, that you have not gone too far, that if you will put your faith in Christ, He will give you a brand new life from the inside out. You have not gone to that place where you are beyond God's grace yet. He came for people just like you, people just like me. And my own brokenness and my own sin, He came for me. So He did come down into the brokenness of this world. He walked among us. He, he taught us what it was like to be free. But these wicked people have made a fatal mistake. A terrible, horrible mistake. Look at verse 12. Arise, O Lord. If you go back to chapter 9 or Psalm 9, you'll find the same phrase there. Arise, O Lord, in verse 19. He says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call them to account? It's because the reason they say this is because if they can believe that no God exists, it makes it a whole lot easier for them to continue to trod upon the poor. Listen, if you live in a godless state of mind, you'll have no problem walking over your neighbor. If you live in a place where you have got to this conclusion that, that either God is off running the universe somewhere or He doesn't exist at all, you'll have no problem justifying whatever action, lust, hatred you've got in your heart. Verse 14, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself, for you have been the helper of the fatherless. If you just do a study on the fatherless through the Old Testament, you'll find that God is for the fatherless, the orphan, the one that is being abused and misused. God's heart is for the widow. God's heart is for the one who's alone. God's heart is for the broken. And shouldn't the church also be for the broken? Shouldn't the church also be for the orphan? Of all the people on God's green earth that should be the one that is running towards the broken is the ones who've found freedom in Christ. Because you know what freedom is. You know what it's like. You know what it's, you know what it, you know what it's like to be able to finally live your life without the condemnation of humanity upon your back. That Jesus said, and Paul said, that you're now no longer condemned. You see, they have made a vital, terrible mistake. They believe that God is off minding His own business when in fact He's listening to every word. He's seeing every action. Look at verse 15. David calls for action. And this may stun you a little bit. David calls for action. He says, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. That's pretty direct, isn't it? David says, God intervene, break his arm so he cannot continue to beat the poor. Break his arm. So you cannot continue to, to benefit financially off of the widow. Lord, break his arm. Bring him down. Bring him down to a place where he experiences the judgment of your hand. And he says in verse 16, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations shall perish from his land. So before we think that this is an African problem, or a Malawi problem, or an India problem, and that because it's so far removed from us, we have no responsibility. Well, as we close, let me show you your responsibility. 
Notice what David says here. He says, O Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You see, I'm convinced that we need to hear the cries of the broken. We're too busy. We're spending too much time here. And and the more time we spend looking here, the less time we have for the broken around us. I'm convinced that until we hear the broken, until our eyes and our ears are open to what's going on, not only in our own community, but across this globe, we'll do nothing about it, and we'll spend the rest of our life focused on us. David says, Lord, hear. Hear the desire of the afflicted. Church, hear the desires of those who are afflicted. And then he says, you will strengthen their heart. Strengthen their heart. Find hope, the possibility of freedom. That, that, that these, these people who are experiencing such brokenness, that someone would simply love them. Did you know that the majority of these people have never been truly loved by anyone? That we have, we have children growing up who've never been loved by a parent? Have no idea what it means to be unconditionally loved? Did you know that we have kids that come and are part of our ministries who've never truly felt love other than when they come here once a week? Staggering. He says that you will strengthen their heart and you will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and oppressed. I'll give you six things really quick that you can do right now. Right now, this day, right now. No more excuses. We, we can't talk it away because it's in India. We can't talk it away because it's in Kenya. What are some things we can do right now, starting in our community, in this place? Number one, I can treat others fairly with love and respect. It starts there. Born-again Christians, please, please, don't treat that drive through young lady at the drive through at McDonald's. Don't treat her like dirt because she didn't get your food to you quick enough or she didn't give you the right change. Treat her with love and respect. Well, how does that change the world? Well, Jesus believed that it would. That love, unconditional love and respect for other people, I'm telling you, it makes a huge difference when there's a world that has a void of it. Number two, I can become a foster parent. I I talk with uh, someone in our church who's very involved with the foster parents. We've been supporting the foster parents. You can foster a child that desperately needs to know love right here in our own community. We'll we'll help you get plugged into the train. Maybe Maybe you're an empty nester now. Maybe your kids have all grown up, moved away. You're not too old. You haven't crossed over you. You still got a lot of life in you. And there's a lot of kids in this community that need a loving home, that need to know what justice is and love is and grace is. How about considering becoming a foster parent? I'll help you get connected to the classes. And you can begin this journey. I've met with the foster families several times now, and man, what a loving group of people. I love being around them. Or maybe you can adopt. You know, my heart for adoption. Maybe God would call you to adopt right here in our own community. You have the resources to do it. Maybe God would call you to do that. So number one, I can treat others fairly with love and respect. Number two, I can become a foster parent, make a difference in a kid right here. Number three, you might get tired of me talking about this, but that's okay. You can stop purchasing pornography. Let me explain. 
If you were involved in pornography, let me tell you what money, the money you're putting into that, let me tell you where that's going. It's going to enslave children and teens all over the world to put them into a market of sex slavery and sex trade. You, my friend, are financing it. I give you a hundred reasons to stop looking at pornography, but this would have to be in the top three. Stop doing it because you're funding injustice all over the world. And watch where you're putting your money. Because there's organizations that are funding this filth, and you need to be aware of that. And if you're helping it, you need to stop. Number four, you need to speak up for those who have no voice. You need to speak up. You need to speak up for those who are voiceless. You need to speak up for that, for that child that you saw at school that maybe has some kind of physical disability or mental disability, and you see that child getting picked on. Do not walk by. Do not just turn your back. Do not be busy with something else. Take the initiative to be the voice for the one that has no voice. You know, I can still see kids that I grew up with in elementary school that had those kind of challenges. I can still see those kids being picked on today. I can still hear the words that were said. Number five. I can pay attention to what companies are being just and which are not, which companies you're doing business with. If they're, being, if, they have a known, if they're known for being unjust, if they're known for oppressing people of other countries, wherever it is, stop doing business with them. That's something you can do today. And finally, number six, I can give out of my abundance to help those who have very little. We've been blessed. Let's be a blessing to others financially. You're going to have an opportunity to give. As our worship team comes this morning, we're going to prepare. So this is going to be an invitation and an opportunity for you to give all at the same time. There are some envelopes over here on the table where if you want to support IJM monthly, you can do that. Also, if you want to get connected with Baptist Global Mission, I can help you do that. We've been blessed as a church. This is why we want to give 100% of everything that comes in today to this. We want to be a voice for those who have no voice. We want to be someone who shows unconditional love, and we want to partner with an organization like IJM and Baptist Global Missions who are out there on the ground doing the work. So this morning, as you stand to your feet, and as our ushers come forward this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let's ask the Lord what He'd have us do to be a voice for those who have none. Father, we thank You for for King David for writing this psalm, because what it shows us is, is that very little has changed in the world. That the same problems he saw is the same problems we see. And now that we've been made aware of it, what would you have us do? Maybe, Father, you want us to go. Maybe you want a team from this church to go somewhere, somewhere on the globe, to be a voice for those who have no voice. Maybe... Maybe, Father, right now you want us to give. Maybe we already had an idea in our mind what we were going to give, but you've already changed that. Maybe, Father, we just need to start being kind to those around us. So, Father, as we sing this song, this song is, uh, carries with it its own conviction. So, Father, I pray that you would do something in our hearts right now during this invitation song, during this time of commitment. We ask that you would move. We ask all this in Christ's name. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 